When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Janice Dean Podcast. So excited to have my friend Johnny Joey Jones with me today. If you've watched him on television or have heard him on the radio or you see him on social media, then you know his background as a proud American and someone who has served his country and risked his life to protect our freedom. He endured two combat deployments and eight years of active service in the Marine Corps. In 2010, Staff Sergeant Jones endured a life-changing injury while in Afghanistan working as an EOD bomb technician. He lost both of his legs above the knee and suffered severe damage to his right forearm and both wrists. He doesn't shy away from talking about his injuries and how it impacts his daily routine. He dedicates his life to try to help fellow veterans and their families. Joey has a new book that's out in the next few weeks called Unbroken Bonds of Battle, a modern warrior's book of heroism, patriotism, and friendship. You will be inspired and in awe of his attitude about life and how he's used challenges to help others. I'm honored to call him my friend. So please welcome Joey Jones on the Janice Dean podcast. Joey Jones, you made the Dean's list. <laughs> This is an honor. When it comes to things in this building, you could uh, consider an honor. This is towards the top. Oh, stop. Well, I've wanted to interview you for a while, but you know, sometimes our paths cross. You're on Fox and Friends, and then sometimes you come in for Fox and Friends first. And what's that like? Do you like having sort of a schedule that's a little bit all over the place? Like is a strong word if you're talking about the schedule itself. Right. And, you know, I was just in a meeting and talking about that. I am one of the few people in this building that gets to show my tattoos and maybe have a word beeped out on Gutfeld <laughs> and then host Fox and Friends on Easter. You know? And so, but I do love that. Um, I love that pliability when it mm-hmm. comes to, you know, we may be talking about the same things, but it, when it's in a different setting, a different time of day, in a different format, you get to think about it differently. Yeah, I and think it's good practice it. for anything in life, right? Absolutely. And I always tell students that are trying to get into broadcasting that don't have your eye on the prize. Like, don't have this sort of myopic view of what you want to do. You can have a broad view. Like, I knew I wanted to get in broadcasting. I didn't know that I would be be, uh, be a broadcast meteorologist. But I knew sort of in general what I wanted to do. But when I got into college and when I got into a radio station or a TV station, I would always, you know, you have to volunteer. You have to bug somebody to to tag along and learn every job because then you have an appreciation for everybody else. Well, on that volunteer aspect, we were talking just a few minutes ago. I said, yeah, I really did this by accident. The truth is, um, you have to be willing to do it for free for a while. Yes, and agreed. I know that sounds terrible. No, it's, it's not. true. I did it for yeah. you know while I was in college. And that's exactly right. For me, you know, I, I got injured and I had kind of a, a part-time, full-time job in military nonprofit space, and 
it's like, hey, I could go on television and really talk about these things that I'm passionate about mm-hmm. or radio or local TV or Fox was actually early on. So I got lucky in that respect. Um, but it was always from the perspective of what an honor it is to have this platform and share this belief or this information. And then it's like, could you actually do it as a host? Uh, you know, probably not. In <laughs> six years of doing it, you know, for free, it's like, oh, here's an opportunity. Yeah. Tell me, tell me how you got here by accident. It's such an amazing story and amazing in the sense of it's funny. When mm-hmm. you're in this business, it's funny. I think it'd be funny for the audience too. So I basically just was injured in Afghanistan on August 6, 2010. You recover in D.C. And for me, I got bored early. My physical recovery was pretty short. I figured out the prosthetics pretty quick. The paperwork to catch up to you to decide if you're going to stay in or get out or go to the VA or what you're going to do, that's a at the time multi-year process. Okay. So I was left with about a year of my life where I was stationed, and I'm quoting with my fingers right now, at Walter Reed, but I didn't have a job. My job was to recover, and my recovery was mostly done. So I started volunteering at nonprofits, and I started um, going to school in the evening, and then I needed a job. Mm -hmm. And my first job was working on Capitol Hill. I I literally finagled my way into a position that didn't exist. How'd you do that? The chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee, this is a little bit nerdy, so hopefully it's not. No, I love nerdy. So the chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee was a guy named Jeff Miller. Mm -hmm. Jeff Miller represented the first district of Florida, which is, I think, Matt Gates' district now, that Mm -hmm. panhandle region. In the center of that district is Destin, Florida, and that's where the Explosive Ordnance Disposal School and Memorial and everything is. That's the the center, the mecca of our job field for all four services. Yep. So I went, I was invited uh, to an evening event on Friday, and I went to that event with, with the goal of getting Jeff Miller to let me volunteer at the House Veterans Affairs Committee. So I walked up to him and said, I know all your constituents, and they think you should give me a job. <laughs> and, you know, a little bit, I was young and spry back then, you know, maybe <laughs> a glass still of red young wine. And spry. <laughs> and so um, he kind of looked at me like I had three eyeballs and no legs, and, uh, and he smiled. And we had a conversation, and that was on a Friday. On Monday, his comms office reached out to me, said, hey, we'd like for you to come up tomorrow and interview for a fellowship we want to do. Okay. All this is great until you get to the part where I'm active duty Marine Corps, and there's a lot of reasons why I can't just tell a congressman to give me a job while I'm active duty in the Marine Corps, <laughs> okay. and I'm supposed to be recovering at Walter Reed. Right. And so I go up there, and I probably bring the worst resume Capitol Hill has ever seen that was successful. <laughs> Why? Because I didn't know how to make a resume. I just typed up, you know, this is who I am and what I do and what I want to do. Might be a great resume. There you go. And uh, and we did like a 30-minute meeting. They're like, yeah, we'd love for you to start. This was in June. And they're like, the week after 4th of July would be a great time. So I started going up there. So my schedule during that time was I'd get up early. Yep. I'd do my physical rehab 7 to 9. And I'd drive over to Capitol Hill. I'd usually get there by 10. And I'd stay till about 4 because I had classes 6 to 10. And I'd do that three or four days a week. Wow. And uh, and that opened the doors that turned into me working in politics. And I'd say Twitter was a big part of me getting the attention of someone like Greg Gutfeld. Interesting. Absolutely. I got into really? that early. And um, How did that go? Well, Greg has a different version of the story than I do. <laughs> and this is the first time I've shared this story at large. Oh, wow. So this okay. is an exclusive here. Bring it. So I met Jen Williams, uh, who's a fantastic producer and a close friend of mine. She's moved on and gotten out of this business probably for her for her betterment. She's raising she's a service dogs. You yes. know, it's just she's Love a her. huge, huge heart. And she invited me to come on the network for the very first time in twenty twelve, I believe it was, 
Kyle Carpenter was about to get the Medal of Honor. Okay. Kyle Carpenter did that job on Capitol Hill after I did. Ah. Basically, when I got that job, they, they didn't know, the Marine Corps didn't know. When the Marine Corps found out, they're like, hey, the only way we can leave him there is if we make it a year-long fellowship and, mm. and put some paperwork behind it that made it look impartial and formal. Okay. So in order to do that, it created a, an annual fellowship, and Kyle Carpenter is who I nominated to take it after me. So Kyle being on Capitol Hill and his story being so amazing, somebody finally noticed it and said, this is not a star. This is a Medal of Honor award. Oh, wow. So they were upgrading his award, and Jen's like, hey, why don't you come on and talk about it? I said, I'd love to. You know, never done live TV before, never have to do it again. Who cares? <laughs> I sit down, and President Obama cuts in with a press conference. Okay. And this specific press conference was where President Obama told the country, hey, remember those guys I called JV last month, ISIS? Well, I'm actually about to go kill them. I'm going to go to war with them. And so that was a big deal. Everyone tuned in. Yeah. If you were a conservative or a Fox News fan, when he got done talking, you saw me in my first time on TV. And so I gave a response to President Obama's press conference because okay. Jen asked me to. And, I, and in my mind, I'm like, I'll never do this again. I'll do the best I can. Who cares? Yep. And then different people would ask me on. Wow. A year later, Greg finds me on Twitter and he gets Greg Gutfeld. I think it was originally called the Greg Gutfeld Show, the yep. Saturday show. Mm -hmm. And he invites me on. Okay. So to this day, Greg thinks he discovered me <laughs> and I will not tell him different. <laughs> I will not correct him on that because, you know. <laughs> He probably knows the other story, but he likes to think that he made, gave you the dean's list. You know, I'm totally okay with that. <laughs> Jen's not around here to care, and uh, Greg's still here, so if he has a vested interest in my success, I'll let him have it. <laughs> Tell me about your service. I mean, I know a lot of us know, um, you know, from your experience here, and, and you've told us, um, you know, what happened to you, but, you know, remind us of, of why, you know, have you always had a serving heart? I feel like the business that you get into is because you're kind of born into it. You know, I tell jokes a lot, probably more than I should because they're not that funny. But my family was from the mountains of North Georgia, and they didn't have a close connection to public service. Mm -hmm. like they're, they were moonshiners, and their version of public service was wearing an orange jumpsuit on Monday because you had too much fun on Saturday. <laughs> And so it was never expected to go into the military. What was expected was to stay out of trouble and graduate high school. Those were the expectations put upon me because that surpassed everything my family had done up until me mm. on both sides. Nobody had a high school diploma, and um, they mostly stayed out of trouble. Okay. And so when I graduated high school, my two best friends both had dads that were career military. Okay. And they knew they were going. Yep. And I'm over here like, well, I'm never leaving this town. Like, what are you talking about going to the military? That's crazy. So, of course, if luck would have it, I, I went first and joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> Why'd you pick the Marines? I joined the Marine Corps because I wanted um, the hardest challenge, the toughest challenge. Wow. And, and I think most services will tell you upon entry, I mean, it's kind of technically the Marine Corps runs a longer distance, has a more rigorous physical fitness, height and weight standard, that kind of thing. Okay. And the Marine Corps presents itself, or it used to, as a challenge. Mm -hmm. It isn't, we need you to be a Marine, it's... Do you have what it takes to become a Marine? Mm. I graduated high school at 17. I was a little bit less mature than everyone that was older than me, and I wanted that maturity and responsibility, and the Marine Corps was selling that. Okay. The irony there is before you get through boot camp, it's no longer about you and what it does for you. You get indoctrinated in the best way possible, and it's about what you can do for others. Huh. And that carried with me, and I hope it still does today. Mm-hmm. 
Did you love it? Was it intimidating? I loved every minute. Well, the funny thing is, I played football. Yeah. And for those of, that understand football, I was a five foot ten. 165-pound offensive lineman on a team that didn't have a good quarterback. So we ran the ball every play. <laughs> and what you what you learn there is you better be a little bit meaner than the guy across from you because he's a whole lot bigger. <laughs> and the Marine Corps was that for me. I didn't know to think, like, be the best at this. For me, it was can I do it? Mm. And looking back, the Marine, the Marine Corps way is can you be the best at it? And that's oh. what it taught me. Wow. I mean, did you think that you might be in a war? How did you think of something like that? I remember when I joined, because I graduated high school in 2004, and I joined in 2005. I waited until I was 18. And um, I remember vividly a guy that I'd played bo- football with who had graduated in 2002. He went to war in 2003 and came back my senior year and did like a slideshow. And I remember thinking, man, that's awesome. And I remember thinking... By the time I graduate, even if I joined the Marine Corps, there's no way that war would still be going. Oh, wow. And I remember thinking, when I decided to join, I remember thinking, I better hurry up and get through boot camp, otherwise I won't get a chance to go to this war. And I look back now, and it's like, I could have become a doctor and went to that war. It lasts for 20 years, but we had no idea then. I mean, I have to ask you what what you think now, um, in hindsight. A couple of years ago when we exited, that was difficult for me, but not for the same reasons a lot of other people are upset. I knew in 2010 we were going to leave all our gear. That was common knowledge. I knew in 2010 we were never going to create an Afghan army, police force, or government that would control the country. Okay. The culture of the country is tribal and regional. Yes. And it's older than any boundary we have ever set. Mm-hmm. You're not going to change that. Right. My hope was that we accepted that and played into that, and we started to in individual little efforts. And there just is no political will, and there was no good communicator from the White House through Congress to explain that to the American people. Mm -hmm. And to reorganize your strategy 10 years into a war makes no sense. So I didn't expect a better outcome. Okay. It still was a ripping a Band-Aid off a wound seeing it happen. Right. Yeah. And when do you think it's going to come back at us? It's hard to say. Um, it's st- it, it never went away, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Trump did change the script a little bit as far as um, our enemies seeing us as a primary suspect. Mm-hmm. I think he did uh, help change perspective there. I mean, ultimately, I don't trust the Taliban as far as I can throw them. That's a Georgia saying there. And I don't trust the idea of negotiating with them. I don't support bringing them to Camp David. But I think um, they're fighting for their own survival right now. Okay. Because it's easy to be an antagonist. Mm. But when you have to step up and take responsibility and run a country, that's Mm. different. Yeah. And I think that the biggest thing keeping them at bay is the idea that they think they're running that country and they're Mm -hmm. occupied with it. Mm -hmm. So that's helpful. Does it go away? No, it's never gone away. Yeah. Since the time of the Crusades, it hasn't gone away. It is a rift that pulls at people's passions and beliefs and doesn't go away. Yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell me about your injury. Um, you know, you joke about it, and you t- Twitter can be a really awful, terrible place. <laughs> but I like the way you kind of come back at people. Um, you know, I try to do it too, a little bit. I'd like to say other things, but I want to make <laughs> sure that, you know, I'm not going low like they are. The, and you know what it is? They're not going low. They are low. Yeah. They're in a bad spot. You know, it's, I call it the Chick-fil-A model. I used to live in Fayetteville, Georgia, where Chick-fil-A was founded and where it's still headquartered. And I don't even know if this is true, but it's the saying, the belief is that the people that run Chick-fil-A's or own Chick-fil-A's get empathy training. Okay. And they get training like, hey, you're standing there and the person you're across the register from is being terrible to you. And somebody says that person just lost their mom or that person got fired five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. How can you change that? How can you bless their day and change how they're acting? And that's the strategy I employ with Twitter to mm-hmm. an extent. Okay. So uh, if somebody is outright hateful at me, that is not an, a rational way to be. Mm-hmm. So either something in their life has bothered them so much, and I symbolize that for a brief moment, or they are very ashamed or, or insecure and they're lashing out at me because it's a mirror at that moment. Yeah. None of that has anything to do with me. So why should I take that personal or be bothered by it? That is so smart. That is just, it just, you know, shone a light through a window. <laughs> it did. Because you're right. Because sometimes I'm just like, wow, how terrible of this person <laughs> to say something like that. You know, does evil exist? Of course it does. And I have no problem stomping it out in different ways. And But when it comes to just being hateful, like on Twitter, that's a, that's a you thing, not a me thing. Right. If, you're, if you're being hateful or t- attacking me, you, you've got something going on that I didn't cause and can't fix. And I can't tell you the people or the accounts because usually it's a nameless, faceless Twitter account. Right. I can't tell you the ones that find their way into my inbox apologizing. Wow. And I didn't do any, I did. I wasn't nice to them. I just wasn't mean in return. Hmm. And they come back, sometimes it's immediately, sometimes it's a week later, I, you know, apologizing in their way. Okay. And uh, I don't acknowledge it because I, they didn't earn that from me. But I'm glad that they have seen for themselves, like, hey, that's just not a, that's just not the way to, to live. Yeah. Do Chick-fil-A really do that? That's what I've always been told living in Fayetteville. It's That's what really I've been told smart. by several people. How, what brilliant. I almost yeah. want to do a story about that. I'll find out. I, you know, I have a phone number to get a hold of Dan Cat. Okay, I'll I would like out. that. Yeah. yeah, because I think that's brilliant. I think more businesses need to do that. It's So if you ever go through a Chick-fil-A drive through I'd say nine and a half times out of ten, no matter what you say to them, the last thing they say to you is my pleasure. Oh. And so there's a culture there that matters. Yeah. And, uh, and so it makes sense. Um it makes sense that when you're in when you're in the fast food business, you're in the customer service business. Mm-hmm. When you're in the clothing business, you're, it's all about customer service. Yeah. And if you put that first, you'll have a reputation of it. Plus, they have really good food. Yes, that that doesn't hurt, does it? <laughs> 
I don't know what the culture is at uh, some of my other fast food places, I, but the food gets me there. You right? know what? So. I'm not going to be angry after you give me that food. <laughs> That's exactly right. There's something something in that chicken makes you want and more. And that lemonade, too. It's just yes. like, I'm oh, making me happy right or now. Or a frosted lemonade. <gasps> oh, my, my God. My son loves that so much. It's his favorite. Well, see, you know, we're on a tangent now, but they have the strawberry version now. No! And when did that happen? I, you know, maybe it's something we're only blessed with because I'm there near where they're from, but we have the strawberry <laughs> version and both of my kids are strawberry fanatics. They don't like chocolate at all. They'll tolerate vanilla, but they love strawberry. Yeah. And so, like, it is like through the summer, it's like, you know, I have to take them to Chick-fil-A almost every day. Oh, yeah. I wonder if they have that in New York. You know, I, I don't know because we do get menu items. Yes, that, we do. That well, like or in, you do. Yeah, we get menu better items than us. that nobody else You're gets. You're better than us. And uh, I, well, we're closer. <laughs> we're better situated. Yes, it. We're <laughs> uh, now, you know, you talk about when you lost your legs, and I heard you talk about it on Fox's Fox and Friends this morning, and you say that you woke up and you were just felt blessed to be alive. Tell me about that. You know, the job I did, taking bombs apart or what we call IEDs, um, it's a small field. There aren't a lot of us. Back then, there were even less, almost half as many. And IEDs were prevalent Mm -hmm. with two wars going on. You knew somebody that was killed by an IED. You knew somebody that had the legs taken by an IED. You knew several people that watched that happen to their friends before you get there. So we are more conditioned to the possibility of tragedy than probably anyone fighting the war in that moment, in that snapshot in time back then, 2010. So by the time I got to Afghanistan, I'd been to Iraq and done that, but by the time I got to Afghanistan, I knew what the threat was, I knew my proximity to it, and I knew the likelihood of of it catching up to me in some way. And it was a little bit of a, you don't say it out loud, but it's a not if, but when. Oh. And if you can be conditioned for something, you're ultimately prepared better for it when it happens. And the other side of that coin is when I stepped on a bomb, it took my legs, but it took my friend Daniel Greer's life. Yeah. And I can't look at that truth and not be grateful to be alive. I owe it to him to be grateful to be alive. And I'm just beyond blessed and fortunate that when the synapses in my brain connected and were created, they arranged themselves in such a way that I understood that quickly. Wow. How, how so? I never had a moment of uh, self-loathing. Mm. I never had that. Not truly. I had frustration. Yeah. But I never said, you know, why me? Like, I, like it shouldn't have happened to me. I knew why me. I made several choices that put me in that position. Um, And the idea that you can stand on a bomb and have three of your limbs severed, a punctured lung, uh, because my right arm was almost fully severed, a punctured lung, your face has got more holes in it than it's supposed to, your cheekbones are broken, your eyes are swelling shut, you're losing more blood than, than you're pumping, and for all intents and purposes, you are dying. And the idea that some 18 to 22-year-olds can not only save your life but do it in a way that salvages your limbs and and I get the use of my right hand back. My face doesn't look like it's been blown up. My my ribs healed. Like the the fact that I healed so well because of what they did, man, that's just – that blows me away. Like that that's the coolest thing ever. Yeah. Did you tell them that? Every day. 
every day. I've, I've said it. I say it every way I can. I talk about Daniel Greer every time I talk about my injury because he was killed in it. And I've reconnected with several of the medical personnel that worked on me that day. Mm. What was yeah. Daniel like? Daniel was the best version of uh, of what I can – what am I trying to say? Daniel was a better version of what I'm about to tell you than what I'm telling you. Words can't put it in there. He was a true person and a kind soul. He um, was a full-time fireman. He lived between Nashville and Knoxville, Tennessee. That was the worst thing about him. He was a Tennessee fan. I come from Georgia. We know how to play football there anyway. Um, and so he lived between Nashville and Knoxville, Tennessee – he married uh, the love of his life, who was a few years older than him, and she likes to joke about robbing the cradle with him. They had their first child, their, their newborn son, uh, was not a year old when Daniel deployed. He was a full-time fireman and joined the Marine Corps Reserves because he believed that it, in, in his age and ability, he should be serving in the military if we were at war. Like, that was his civil wow. obligation. Mm. He could, so he should. It was what he believed. So he chased down joining the Marine Corps during a time of war. Then as a reservist, it's not guaranteed you'll deploy. So he chased down a job, and then he chased down a deployment. He wanted to serve. And when we got there, he was with a team of others doing his job, and he was where he was when he was killed because he was the guy that said, let me do it. Oh. And uh, he was a he was he was saved and baptized before the deployment. That was very much a big part of his personality in his life. He mentored me on important things like being a dad, a potential husband, faith, and then I mentored him on our profession because my my job was a um, was a more in depth, more informative version of what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're in touch with his family, too, still? I am. I, uh, his wife was gifted a home by Tunnel to Towers. Oh, so lovely. So any, anytime, uh, and I'm sure your audience knows them, so anytime Frank Siller asked me to speak at an event or MC an event, he knows my date's going to be Stacy Greer's, and I'm going to bring her with uh. me. And, uh, and we just spent a day together in Detroit um, about a week ago or a, a little while ago uh, raising money for Tunnel to Towers. and. Um, his son, Ethan, is the same age as my son and is a spitting image. And it's just amazing to see her raise this young man to be so much like a dad he never really met. Mm. Um, it just shows you how how great of a mom she is. I think if you're a spouse of somebody, like my husband's a fireman, you have to realize that they are doing this for a reason. And when they walk out that door, there is a chance that they're not going to come home. One of the things that bothers me most about this country, and there aren't many because I'm in love with this country, is our – and I don't want to say – you know, we talk about – let me rephrase this, sorry. We talk all the time about how we need to be grateful for the men and women serving in our military, and that is true. But it's pretty name-brand at this point. Like, thankfully, when the men and women came home from Vietnam, they made it their mission that my generation would not be treated the same way. If we should put as much work and appreciation into honoring our police and firemen. Mm. Uh, both of my brother-in-laws are career firemen. This is what I'll tell you. I've been to two wars. I had my body blown up. I lost dozens of friends. The worst thing I ever experienced in war involved innocent children getting hurt. Mm. Two, two incidents, one deployment. My brother-in-laws have seen that yeah. on dang near a weekly basis in their community, yeah. when they take their wife to dinner and they drive down Main Street, in their minds, what they're seeing is there's where that head-on collision was. Yes. There's where I pulled that baby out of that building that didn't make it. There's where 
I watched a man watch his mom overdose. There's where, and it just all the way down through there yeah. for 20 years. Yeah. And we don't appreciate that at all. Mm. It, I know it more from the fireman perspective because that's who's in my family and I'm closest to. But I have several buddies that are police officers, and it's very similar, and obviously with the politics of today, in some ways worse. Mm. Well, thank you for that. It's true. I mean, and, you know, my husband's not somebody that likes to share a lot of things, but exactly what you said, you know, we'll— We'll drive in Manhattan and he'll look at a building and say, I was there. I did that. You know, it's but it's part of him. Like he was never he could have been anything he wanted to be. He could have been a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. That's the other side. They they're brilliant. You don't understand the facets of knowledge a first responder has to master. We're talking in a short period of time, medical, chemistry, electronic engineering. We're talking every aspect of life, of knowledge that could be a hazard or something they need to know to save somebody's life. They never stop learning. Mm-hmm. They never stop going to school. Yep. They never stop earning um, certificates in education. And we don't pay them correctly for it. We don't respect them correctly for it. It doesn't get the dignity it should, and it doesn't get the gratitude it should. And you know what? It's still not going away because we just have those kind of people. Yeah, it's true. He, he would have done it, you know, even if people told him not to. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Um, Tell me about this book, um, Unbroken Bonds of Battle. Such a great segue. These people in this book, there are 10 of them, non-service members, a handful of wounded, a gold star brother, and then one gold star widow, Stacey Greer. All of these people have been instrumental in my life, some of them in short moments, most of them the majority of my life. My best friend growing up, Keith Stancil, is in the book. He joined the Army when I joined the Marine Corps. Um, We shared a best friend, Chris McDonald, that's no longer with us. We tell the story of why that is and how impactful it was to us. Chris was in the Marine Corps. All three of us grew up together. Danny Ridgway is in the book. He received the Silver Star, which is one of the highest honors you can in valor. We lived together for a year and we've been through everything together. My, the loss of my dad, his divorce, both of us getting blown up, uh, the frustrations of recovery. Uh, Greg Robluski's in the book who commanded Danny Ridgway's unit um, and, and was the deadliest bomb tech deployment in the Marine Corps history. He was the commander of that and carries that guilt every day, but has learned to use that guilt to keep him in contact with the Marines he was in charge of. Stacy Greer's in that book. Her husband died when I stepped on an IED. She's raised his son. Wesley Hunt, the congressman, is in that book. Mm. He is one of the most impressive people I've ever met. He's an African-American uh, soldier, and I bring that up because that's, he, he talks about that issue in the book about, hey, you know, I grew up poor white in the South. He grew up, uh, you know, middle class in the South as a black guy. And there's so much about what our daddy said to us that's the exact same. Wow. And, and you know, his dad was a military guy. And my dad was not. <laughs> and so, 
you know, there's a culture that we share and a, and a belief that we share, not just in the South, but across this country about how to do things right and what responsibility means and what you owe to those around you. And Wesley is very articulate and explains that in the book. And Wesley and I had this conversation a couple of years ago filming Patriots Playlist for Fox Nation. And as we've navigated some of the politics that we talk about, Wesley's perspective has been a guiding light for me to understand things that, that don't affect me the same way. And so to have him in the book and to share that was an honor. Mm-hmm. Nate Boyer is in the book. And I'll, st- I'll wrap it up in a no, second. I, no, keep going. I want to hear all of them. Nate Boyer is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. So Nate Boyer was 29 years old, five foot nine on a good day, um, was an Army Green Beret. He did all of that after paying his own way to Africa on a humanitarian mission and realizing that the way he could have a bigger help was to join the military. So just to back that up. So then he goes through, has a great Green Beret career, decides to get off active duty and join the reserves, the reserve units in Texas. So what does he do? He uh, enrolls at the University of Austin, Texas, the the big University of Texas, while Mac Brown is the coach. Never played down to football in his life. Says, you know what? I want to try out for the football team. I need that physical challenge still. Goes, tries out for the football team in spring training. Doesn't know anything about football, but he's running laps around the guys in pads at 29 years old. And Mac Brown goes, that's enough that I think I want you on my team. I don't know what you're going to do, but I want you in pads on my team at 29 years old. And Nate goes, okay, but I've got to go to Afghanistan this summer on a deployment. And Mac says, well, when you get back, have a skill. While you're there, learn how to catch, learn how to throw, learn how to do something. So Nate goes on deployment and learns how to long snap and gets great at it. So for three of his four years at the University of Texas, he deployed in the summertime and played football in the fall and was their starting long snapper for, I think, three of those years. Well, then he gets a call from Pete Carroll to go try out for the Seattle Seahawks. Wow. They hear about him like, hey, we need some of that on our team. (laughs) He goes to the preseason with them. And he would have made the team, but they had a, a, a receiver get hurt they didn't want to let go of, so they had to drop Nate to pick up a receiver. The NFL Here's the Story makes him an honorary alumni. All of that's fantastic. Then Colin Kaepernick sits down for the national anthem. And I get mad. We all get mad. Yeah. We all get upset. Nate sees it. He's one of the few people in the world that has a direct connection to the military and a direct connection to the NFL. He writes an open letter, publish, publishes it to Colin Kaepernick, Basically saying, hey, this is how I feel about it, but I want to hear what you have to say. Wow. I'm not mad at you yet. I want to okay. hear, yep. hear why. Colin flies him out to San Francisco, and Nate has a conversation with him. And Nate talks Colin into taking a knee instead of sitting down because Nate wanted him to stand. But they agreed that taking a knee was a more deliberate action, and it showed posture in some respect. Okay. As opposed to just sitting on the bench. Well, I get roped into it. I reached out to Nate. I'm like, hey, man, I read your open letter. I think it's fantastic. I want to hear how it went. Nate puts me on a group text with Colin Kaepernick, Nate, and uh, I think it was Eric Reed. And we talked for a couple of days, and it's very constructive. And then, it, you know, Colin has a football game, and then he wears pig police officer socks to practice in a, as like a Fidel Castro T-shirt or something, and he just goes in a completely different direction. And through all of that, I gained a good friend in Nate, and somebody that mentored me in channeling my own anger to make it constructive as opposed to adding to the destructive nature of that issue. I mean, that issue tore us apart. Yeah. And I, lo- and I didn't do it at 100%, but I learned to keep some of that anger in check because what Colin was doing was drawing a line in the sand and daring you to step over it. Wow. And what we needed to do 
was try to reach out and say, listen, I may not understand what you're talking about, but I'll give it respect. But if but if you want it, you got to earn it. So respect me too. Yeah. And uh, and Nate and I were able to through his organization, merging bets and players, we were able to have that kind of conversation with a lot of young men leaving the NFL, and so we, a lot of good came from it. Did you ever talk to Kaepernick again? No, I still have a number in my phone that may be his, but you know, I don't have. Wow. Um, Do you know what happened? Why? There are a lot of there's a lot of media and public speculation as to what made him turn. Yeah. I, you want to know my honest God answer to this, the yeah. truth? It's honestly what I believe. And this is purely speculation. Okay. I think if you tell somebody they're terrible, they'll be terrible. Mm. And I think the initial reaction to him was, how dare you? And ultimately his reaction was, I will dare you. Wow. I think that, you know, that's what I believe. Mm-hmm. I think he was a young man well, with some pressure trying to figure himself out, and chose the wrong ways to do it. Mm. But at least you tried. You know, I feel like nowadays people don't even want to try to have the conversation, right? You, it's just like, yeah. nope, here's the door. I'm closing it. You get more instant gratification if you'll go on television or go on your podcast and yell at the mountaintops the frustrations that your audience is feeling. Mm. But that's not always constructive. Right. People will feel better if you'll go and be like, to heck with that person, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's what I was thinking. Heck yeah. That's instant gratification. But then how are, what are we going to do tomorrow? Yeah. You know, what does that change? Sometimes things need to be voiced and, and said, but um, can you change something? Can you have enough grace in you to listen, even though you know what you already want to say? And sometimes if you listen, what you have to say changes. Yeah. Politics, what do you think? I hate politics. You do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are you talking about? But wait a minute. You're uh, you're like talking to s- about s- you're talking you're saying to me things that I would want in a politician that's going to reach across the aisle and say this is what you and I have in common. I hate politics, but I love people. Okay. And what I'm talking about are people and problems that people have, problems people create. 90% of it is an inability to communicate in the same way and to understand each other. Politics is taking that and turning it into an industry. That's what it is anymore. And it's sad, right? Yeah. I feel that. And even here at Fox, you know, like what is my job here at Fox is to be a contributor and to fill in as a host here or a commentator there. What is my duty at Fox? To be honest, to have integrity, to be genuine, to acknowledge if I know what I just told you, Act it out. Yeah. Don't just be the angry voice. Mm. And I think a lot of people in this building feel that way. And, and a lot of people in this building try not to just be an angry voice. And, uh, you know, one thing I learned is if you make half the country mad, you're only going to make the other half mad by apologizing, apologizing about it. Interesting. So try not to say something that backs you into that corner to begin with. You yeah. Know? You're an optimistic person? I think you I probably think so. are. I think so. You know, I, a friend of mine works on Capitol Hill. And she's known me for a long time, and every time she learns a new story, she goes, you are either the luckiest unlucky person I know or the unluckiest lucky person I know <laughs> because the worst things happen to you and the results are the best. You know? uh, and it's like, you're probably right. What do you tell your kids? What do you, you know, how old are they? Four and 14. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. so there's a different, you know, there's a yeah. huge um, difference in age. So what do you hope for the 14-year-old? And what do you think about the days ahead for the four-year-old? 
Well, there are, there are different sects, and that matters. So the 14-year-old is my son, and he is way too much like me, but mm. he's a lot smarter. I tell people he's like the nerdy version of me. Okay. And, you know, I hope that doesn't come across negatively. Like no. He, you know, he's known since he was eight years old. He wanted to be an astrophysicist to go to Georgia Tech um, and, you know, like— um, or, or those two things, like you want to be an astrophysicist and go to Georgia Tech. He's been the smartest person in either of his households since he was, you know, starting middle school. He's brilliant. And for him, you know, my worry, because I grew up poor and I grew up working hard. And my worry is, have I taken away too much adversity? Ah. And you know what? That's selling him short. Right. His mom and dad uh, have never been married, so he's always had two households. We have done a yeoman's job of figuring it out, but there were trials and tribulations. And I can't take away from him that he lived through that. Yeah. And so you don't want to cause trauma for your children, but trauma is the single most important part of the human experience because it is the only way you get stronger. Yes. And, um, and so he's had his brand of that. And I've done everything I can to to not bring that into his life, but ultimately it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. My dad died in our house, and so he was there that night, and I don't want him to experience that, but he understands death now. Okay. And so those things build you. Yeah. And so for my son, the most important thing is that he understands the necessity of empathy and kindness and wanting to be a protector and a provider. In my opinion, that's what being a man is all about. And it, whatever his version of that is, if it's brawn or brain or, or music and drama or football, whatever version of that it is, I'm just going to support him and let him know he's got a number one cheerleader. Yeah. And with what my about daughter. Your little girl? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> with my daughter, it's to, uh, it's, she breaks my heart every single day of my life. And that's the honest God's truth. Every time a, a moment of disappointment crosses her face, I feel like a complete failure. And so with my daughter, it's not about what I want to teach her. It's about what I have to teach myself, which is that I owe it to her to be just as strict and stern and consistent with her as I've been with my son. With my son, it's easy because he's a carbon copy of me. <laughs> and we're our own worst critic. Yeah. So it's easy to, to uh, you know, to correct him and point out things because I, in my mind, I've already processed that he can take it. She's a girl. That's an alien, right? I don't know anything about how she thinks. And she's precious and perfect in every way. And, you know, my urge is to never disappoint her. My responsibility is to teach her to live with disappointment. And so so that's that's kind of the goal there. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you tell a person, a mom, myself, (laughs) who has a son that wants to get into the military? I, I worry. I don't want to, you know— put water on his fire. Um, but I, I am that it worries me a little bit. Being a parent is the ultimate form of sacrifice. It really is because not only do you give of your time and your resources, but you give of your heart and your love. And those are things that are very precious. All of those things are very precious. And part of that sacrifice is to give up your selfishness with that child too. Mm. And so, you know, I can't tell you how to treat your son, but if I could go back and talk to my mom who had no intention on letting me join the Marine Corps, the way I would hope she would understand it would be, you've prepared me my whole life and sacrificed my whole life 
so I would be prepared to go do this. Don't take it away from me now yeah. because you're not because it, because it has a certain negative potential. Putting me in the car and sending me down the road is about as dangerous of a thing as you could ever do. Yeah. This is something that could that could make me stronger as mm-hmm. much as it could hurt me. And why would you want to take that away from me? Mm-hmm. And, or why would you not want that for me? And that's that's you and him. Now, when it comes to you dealing with it after he's gone, you probably need to talk to another mom for that because I can't give you that <laughs> advice. You know, but there's well, listen, that, he's 14, you know. but he's already you know talking about that. My husband's been somebody who said he doesn't want my son to be a fireman either. I'm just like, well. <laughs> We got some issues because we don't really have control over that. Yeah. There's only so much we can do. But You know what? And I don't want to stop you from moving on, but here's what I'll tell you. You've raised a young man who wants a life of service and sacrifice. Give yourself a pat on the back. Hmm. You know, you've done your part already. Yeah. Well, you know, as you know, my husband says he would prefer that my son doesn't think about the fire department. And yet, you know, some of the greatest moments are going to the firehouse for christmas you know he takes my kids to the memorial day parade he points out uh the (laughs) man that's 100 years old that served in vietnam and says you need to go up and shake that man's hand and tell him thank you for your service my brother-in-law my wife's brother was uh he's brilliant Uh, i don't know if he's ever had an iq test but if he did it would it would be impressive everyone calls him professor you know and he was an explorer. It's a program we have in Georgia where as a high school uh, teenager, you can go and volunteer at the volunteer fire department. And his dad was a very successful businessman. Uh, my wife and he have a different dad. And um, so his dad said, listen, I don't care what you do, but you're going to go to college. And if you don't care about your degree, you're going to get a business degree. So if something happens to me later in life, you can choose to, you can take over my business. So that was the agreement. I'll support you in anything you do, but get this education first. So my brother-in-law goes to the University of Georgia, and like any good SEC student, gets a four-year degree and a solid five-year plan, (laughs) and he graduates, and he takes his dad. uh, They go to a cabin, kind of a graduation camping outing, and buys his dad the best bottle of bourbon he could afford as a college student. And after they get the first glass poured and cheers, he said, Dad, thank you so much for the education. I'm going to go be a fireman. Oh, my goodness. And his dad has I, – I see them together, and I've, I don't know of a dad that's more proud of his son. Mm. I really don't. Yeah. Well, I thank you for this conversation. I want to, you know, have you on again when the book does come out. When does it come out? June 27th. It's and coming up. I'm excited. We're just a few weeks away. And, you know, this is – I guess to reiterate – this is a this is my story. Yep. There's a lot of narrative in there about me. I talk about my dad a whole lot, talk about football and hunting and principles that are important to me. But I do it through the lens of these ten individuals who have been so important in my life. It was it was gonna be really hard for me to write a whole book about me that just doesn't <laughs> fit my personality. Oh, you could do it. But to do it with these ten individuals and to show how they've been an impact in different moments of my life, I think people really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And you're a very humble person, and I will tell you, as somebody who has written a few books and has to go on TV and tell people to buy it, um, it's going to be hard. <laughs> it is it's hard. really hard because there are times where I'm just like, go, go to the library. <laughs> go get it at the library but people will buy it because you know what um it's stories that we need right now you know and i think that like you said it's the hardships that give us the better the best lessons um and through 
those really tough stories that the sun does come out eventually. That's exactly right. You know, of course the sun does come out. Um, Life is so full of trials and tribulations that the best way through it is to see those for the opportunity to learn and grow that they are. Yes. And man, then it becomes just beautiful. Mm-hmm. You're such a beautiful human. I, I feel so grateful to know you. I really do. Well, I, I feel the same way about you. Well, yeah. congratulations. Yes, and ma'am. you'll come on and you'll try to sell the book again. <laughs> yeah, I'll, do, I'll, I'll go rehearse on my pitch and bring it back <laughs> and be more commanding in my effort to convince people to buy it. <laughs> I can't wait. It's Unbroken Bonds of Battle, and you can get it, pre-order it um, anywhere you get your book. And you're going to be amazing, and I know it's going to be a bestseller, and it's going to hopefully change some lives too. I think so. Thank you so much. God bless you. Same to you. Thank you to my friend and colleague, Joey Jones, for joining me today on the Janice Dean podcast. His book, Unbroken Bonds of Battle, a modern warrior's book of heroism, patriotism, and friendship, will be out on June 27th. It's already a bestseller. You can pre-order it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And special thanks to Joey for his tireless work to help fellow veterans who served this great country. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.